There is very little truth in the old refrain that one cannot legislate equality. Laws not only provide concrete benefits, they can even change the hearts of men. Some men, anyhow, for good or evil. From Critical Frequency, this is B. Beeman, and you're listening to Peace of Mind. I'm a singer-songwriter and producer, I'm a dad, and I'm an American. Peace of Mind is an experiment. It's my new album, but I'm releasing it as a podcast. Today's episode is called Lawyers, Guns, and Money, and it's the title of a great song by Warren Zevon, which I covered for this album. The lyrics are biting and satirical and could basically be about Don Jr., but I'll get into that a bit more later on. Throughout this season of Peace of Mind, we've heard from some incredible lawyers who are fighting to protect our rights and in some cases our lives. People like Dale Ho and Ahalan Arlanandam from the ACLU, and Rabia Chowdhury, an immigration attorney and fierce advocate for the wrongfully convicted, most notably Adnan Syed, and retired Superior Court Judge Ladoris Cordell, who you'll actually hear from again a little later in this episode. But my first guest is John Taylor, who embodies the theme of lawyers, guns, and money, just not in the way Donald Trump needs them. John has worked on a wide range of cases from common sense gun laws to Donald Trump's violation of the emoluments clause. And he's followed by Barack Obama on Twitter. How many of you can say that? I'm John Taylor, and I am a lawyer at a progressive law firm called Gupta Wessler. We are a very small law firm, and we focus on doing appellate work, appellate litigation in particular. Uh, and we, in the broadest sense, tend to represent the little guy against large corporations and now the Trump administration in high-stakes litigation throughout the country. I soon discovered that he was working on two incredibly important cases against Trump, which I had actually been following pretty closely. They even made it into my song, Brother, Can You Spare Some Peace of Mind? So the Emoluments Clause is a provision in the Constitution that prohibits any person holding any office of profit or trust from accepting any present emolument office or title of any kind whatever from any foreign state without the consent of Congress. And emolument is a word that is really no longer in common use, but what it basically means is profit or gain. And what this clause is trying to do is to ensure that our elected representatives and the people who hold offices of profit or trust, which surely includes the president, that when they're executing public policy and doing things that should benefit the country, that they have only the public and the public good in mind and not their own private financial gain. And can you discuss the two cases brought against Trump? Yes. So we serve as counsel to two different sets of plaintiffs in two different cases, both challenging Donald Trump's acceptance of profits from foreign governments. And the first case, which was filed on his first working day in office, was a case, or is a case, that we brought on behalf of a nonprofit ethics watchdog called CREW, which is short for Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. And since then, a few other plaintiffs joined uh, the suit, and they own hotels and other businesses that compete with Trump for for foreign government business. And basically the nub of the lawsuit is that President Trump, by retaining ownership 
of his hotels and other businesses. And by accepting large amounts of money from foreign governments through those businesses, so anytime a Saudi delegation or some other foreign government comes to D.C. and they're visiting the White House and they spend $100,000 or $200,000 on a block of rooms at the Trump International Hotel, that's money that he sees. They're lining his pockets when they stay at his hotels. And the argument is very simple. It's that, you know, by accepting those payments, and we don't know the full extent of the payments because he's so secretive about his financial arrangements, but by accepting those payments and not seeking the consent of Congress, that he's in direct violation of the Constitution's Foreign Emoluments Clause. And so that's the first case, and uh, that case is now on appeal. We, we lost below, not because the judge thought we were wrong on the merits, but because of a technical legal doctrine called standing, which is a doctrine that seeks to ensure that plaintiffs who bring challenges, particularly constitutional challenges, have actually been harmed by the violation. And we think we have a pretty good case for standing here because... The plaintiffs, particularly the hotel owners, have suffered direct financial loss uh, as a result of Trump taking business that they used to get or at least could potentially get and accepting it for himself because he has the presidency and he can offer things that they can't offer. And so that case is now on appeal. It'll be argued on October 30th, but we're optimistic that we'll ultimately prevail on that question and that the court will be allowed to address the merits. And the other case is a case where we represent the District of Columbia, and the state of Maryland. And this case was filed a little after the New York case, but it raises kind of the same question, which, you know, here, the state of Maryland and the District of Columbia, they have properties that they own and that compete with with Trump properties. And they've raised the same claims, which is that Trump is violating the Constitution's Foreign Emoluments Clause and another clause called the Domestic Emoluments Clause, which entitles the president to receive a salary from Congress, but to not accept any payments from the federal government or from the state government beyond that salary and benefits. And by accepting payments from states and the federal government, you know, Trump is in violation of that provision as well. And uh, that case was brought in the District of Maryland, and the judge in that case has allowed the case to proceed. He found that both that the plaintiffs have standing and that the plaintiffs have made out a claim that the president is likely in violation of the clause. And so, you know, you have these two cases proceeding on separate tracks, but it seems likely as these cases go forward and eventually go up on appeal, that uh, it could be the case that the Supreme Court will eventually uh, weigh in. With everything going on around Trump, it's hard to overstate the significance of these cases because this isn't about the spectacle and controversy that surrounds him. This is a sitting president no, a squatting president violating the Constitution. I guess I, one thing I would say about this is that just more broadly why I think this is important is, you know, Trump obviously has violated a lot of norms while he's been in office, you know, soft and hard norms, attacking a free press and the independent judiciary, politicizing the FBI and DOJ, not releasing his tax returns, violating a whole host of procedural norms, calling out businesses who do things that he doesn't like, live-tweeting Fox and Friends in the morning. And the problem in all of those instances is that there isn't much of a remedy for norm violations beyond the political process. But this is different. This is a hard constitutional rule, and courts are equipped to enforce rules like that. And so this is a case where Trump has gone beyond just doing something that clashes with the way things have always been done just as a matter of 
custom or norms. This is a case where Trump is actually in direct violation of a constitutional provision, and we're optimistic that the courts will enforce it. And, I mean, there's the standing in the court, right? But the other side of it is the soft power that anybody can seemingly have with this president. Absolutely. I mean, like you said, Saudi delegations, they've paid, what, hundreds of thousands of dollars, potentially more. Uh, So what do they get for that? And that's not done through normal diplomatic channels. This is something that's seemingly shadier than that. For me, it's just like, why are they staying at that hotel? Not just to be like friendly. They probably want something a little bit more. And that's what's scary. Yeah, let's take that recent incident you just mentioned. So here, you know, recently it's come to everyone's attention that, you know, a U.S. resident, Jamal Khashoggi, has been murdered by the Saudi government. And thus far, uh, President Trump has been reluctant to press the Saudi government on their involvement. And that raises the question why. One possible explanation is that the Saudi government is currently paying a large amount of money each year in the form of payments to his hotels and other properties. And Trump himself said at a campaign rally in 2015, quote, Saudi Arabia, I get along with all of them. They buy apartments from me. They spend 40 million, 50 million. Am I supposed to dislike them? I like them very much. Now, this doesn't mean that he's necessarily pursuing a policy with respect to Saudi Arabia that is designed to benefit his own private financial interests rather than the country's public interests, but it's fair to ask the question. And that's exactly what the framers of our Constitution wanted to avoid, which is why they wrote this rule into the Constitution. It's a broad prophylactic rule that essentially says that the president and other federal office holders cannot profit from foreign governments. And you're right to note that the reason we care about this principally is because it raises concerns of corruption at the highest levels of our government. And although the plaintiffs in our suit also have a concern that their own private financial interests are being harmed by Trump's constitutional violations, the case is important because of its Mm -hmm. public significance. Great. And recently, Trump nominated another batch of appellate court judges. Yeah. Why is that significant, or is there significance to you? Yes. We recently learned that he had 13 nominees uh, for federal court judgeships, and they were all men. And that's of a piece with many of the nominations he's made in his time in office. When a president nominates someone to be a federal judge, they have life tenure. They're in office possibly for 40 or 50 years. So what Trump is doing is profoundly reshaping the federal judiciary. And if you think back to the Obama years, the last two years, Mitch McConnell effectively blocked Obama from nominating anybody to a federal judgeship. And obviously, most famously, was Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court. But a whole bunch of lower court nominees were blocked as well. And what that meant is there were a whole lot of vacancies to fill when Trump took office. And You know, with the aid of the Federalist Society, which is a conservative legal organization that focuses on putting conservatives on the federal bench, he has moved quickly to fill those vacancies with very conservative nominees who are likely to profoundly reshape the the direction of the courts over the decades to come. And, you know, we've seen that in the Supreme Court with the two nominations that he's had. But I think you've seen it also in the lower courts where he's had dozens upon dozens of nominees. And in my interviews, I have multiple recurring themes. One of them has been the importance of the judiciary to the health of a democracy. 
And I wanted to get your take on this, why it's important or what's at stake. I think an independent judiciary is essential to a a well-functioning democracy. I mean, we've seen our democracy really enter a, a quite dysfunctional time now. The Senate doesn't work the way that I think the framers wanted it to. The House is a mess. The presidency is, I mean, it's the focus of your podcast. It's, it's a nightmare. <laughs> and what I think an independent judiciary does is it gives the people some confidence that when it comes to interpreting the law, that judges, you know, they may have been appointed by partisan politicians, but they don't act on behalf of any political party. They do their very best to interpret the law neutrally and fairly and without favor to any group. That is an essential plank of our democracy. And if our confidence in the judiciary and in its independence is eroded, I think you'll also see the health of our democracy uh, be weakened as a result. And so that's something I'm very concerned with. If there's anything that the Kavanaugh confirmation process shows, it's that we are at a perilous time right now when it comes to the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. And I think it's really important that the Supreme Court continue to act as neutrally as possible so that they're not viewed as just another political actor in Washington and that they really are an independent branch of government. And are there any other issues on your radar um, that you think people in the public should be more concerned about? Yeah, I mean, I'll mention one other area of work that we do that I think matters more broadly, and that is we represent every town for gun safety in helping to defend common sense gun regulations from constitutional attack by the NRA and its allies. And I think this work will be increasingly important given the composition of the Supreme Court. So 10 years ago, 2008, the Supreme Court in a case called District of Columbia versus Heller held that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to bear arms. And since announcing that right, the court has really stayed out of the fray and they haven't really issued any opinions saying what that right entails and just how far it goes and just how broad it is. And a lot of observers think that that was in part because of Justice Anthony Kennedy and maybe to a lesser extent Chief Justice Roberts, who were comfortable in announcing the right and identifying the right in Heller, but were uncomfortable to take it too far. And Justice Kavanaugh, if you look at some of his opinions on the D.C. Circuit when he was a judge there, he is not so shy about expanding the Second Amendment right. And I think it's fair to ask the question whether the Supreme Court will now enter the fray, take some cases in the Second Amendment area, and expand the right that has thus far been recognized. And that will then be used to attack and effectively nullify common sense gun regulations that have been acted at the local and state levels and also the federal level. And so that's an area of the law that I would look out for. And that's something, I mean... I'm not going to pretend like I came up with this idea, but I was watching the news and when Kavanaugh was confirmed, someone was talking about how conservatives are very focused on the Supreme Court. Liberals, way less, like way, way less, because they don't have those big ticket items, you know, abortion or gay rights or whatever. And so people on the left, Democrats, kind of got to figure out what's going to pull the whole team together. We got a glimpse last term, the last Supreme Court term of what life might be like going forward for us, and it's not pretty. I don't think Justice Kennedy joined the four more liberal justices in any of the court's 5-4 opinions. And we saw the court deal a major blow to public sector unions and voting rights and uphold the travel ban. 
They punted on the gerrymandering cases. And so I think it's likely that things will get worse, at least from the perspective of the Supreme Court, before it gets better. I mean, what's scary to me is that, I mean, I'm not a world historian, but I definitely keep my eye on what's going on in the world, in other governments, other countries. And we are closer than ever before. We are like within arm's reach of becoming like this banana republic, third world dictatorship where the courts are owned by the president of that country or all the people have been replaced and now they have free reign. Um, I'm not saying we're there. I'm saying we are inching towards yep. that sort of situation. You see that in South America a lot and elsewhere. So it's definitely worrisome. But with all that doom and gloom, yep. you must be hopeful in some way. You must keep your head up. Um, so are you hopeful? <laughs> That's a big question. Um, I will say that if there's a silver lining to the Trump presidency, it's the way in which it has reinvigorated and activated a large swath of America. And I think that people, particularly progressives and liberals, you know, we were a little bit complacent toward the end of the Obama administration. And I think that it's important to be reminded just how fragile political power can be and just how important it is to get out and vote and voice your opinions and to participate fully in the democratic process. And I think Trump has helped in that respect. And I'm also heartened to see ways in which, you know, for all the bluster that Trump has, um, that he really has been constrained, I think, in many respects from fully carrying out his autocratic and bigoted tendencies. And I think that is a testament in large part to some of the strength of our institutions and the ways in which everyday citizens have exercised political power. And so I am optimistic going forward that, you know, this will be a one-term president and that we will right the wrong but, you know, it is a fragile time and there are reasons to be concerned. Well, a lot of people who are probably listening are just everyday Americans and aren't involved on the ground like you are, where you're kind of a keeper of right and wrong. But I think hearing that from you is definitely powerful in that I think a lot of people realized you do have a lot of power as a voter. So for young people, especially young people who feel maybe disillusioned, voting is the power that you have. Yeah, absolutely. You know, for a long time, I think liberals in particular have placed a lot of faith in the courts to bail them out um, and to take a broader view of particular constitutional provisions to protect minorities, to protect, uh, you know, voting rights and other things. And I think that, you know, maybe it's not such a bad thing that progressives are now realizing that the way to go about uh, making change is through voting, through the political process, the democratic process. It's more durable, it's more accountable, and ultimately, I think it's really the way forward. You can check out more of John's work at guptawestler.com or join Obama and follow him on Twitter. Those links are also in the show notes. Coming up, you'll hear from retired Superior Court Judge Ladoris Cordell. If you've been listening to the show, then you'll remember Ladoris from episode two, where we discussed the pillars of our democracy. But for this episode, I wanted to share more of Ladoris's personal story and the experience that led her to the law in the first place. The street I grew up on, the lower half was all black. The upper half was all white. So I lived in a segregated community, although I interacted with white students all the time when I was in mm -hmm. school. But... When the end of the day came, 
the white students went home to their homes, and the black students, we went home to our homes, and never the twain shall meet. And my parents were community activists, community leaders. They got it that it was very important to be active in the community and to give back. Yeah. And knowing your full career now, that seems to have played a huge role. Your parents instilled something in you. Sure. But there was also the history in our family, because on my mother's side, my great-grandmother and great-great-grandmother were slaves. So we know that our family came through the worst of oppression, you can imagine. They were slaves. Mm-hmm. So that has informed who I am. Mm-hmm. And who I am is the offspring of those who survived oppression mm-hmm. and then continued on to be resilient. So mm-hmm. it's sort of on me to just keep on plowing ahead as they had done. So I stand on their shoulders. So what bit you with the law bug? Nobody's ever said law bug in their life, but I, I just said it. I but. like it. So I'm not one of those people who, when they were five, knew they were going to be a lawyer. I was like, no, no. And th- there was no one in my family or no one that I knew who had come up you know, in the legal profession at all. So I end up going to Antioch College in Ohio. It's a year-round college, and so you go to school for three months and then go out in the world, do something. So I ended up in Myersville, Mississippi. Picture 1967, I tell my parents, I'm going to Mississippi, and this is on the Delta. So in Myersville is where I saw my first African-American lawyer. It was a woman. To this day, I do not know her name, but she came with a group of lawyers to register people to vote in Myersville because in Myersville, if you were black, you couldn't go into the courthouse and that's where you had to register to vote. And so I'm sure that was the first inspiration for me to, Because hmm. she inspired you. Yeah, because I had not seen that in my life. Yeah. So I ended up taking a business law course at Antioch and something hit me like I liked the way you have to think. And so something grabbed me. And again, it wasn't like, oh, I want to be a lawyer. I had no clue. But I decided, let me just try law school. So I was really just did it kind of ruling out other things. I was terrified. Um, When I'm sitting in my first class at Stanford, I'm the only black woman. Uh, There were a few black male students, a handful of us. Mm -hmm. I had this big Afro working at the time. I'll show you a picture of it. (laughs) Much bigger than the one I have now, actually, and no gray in it. And I was terrified. And no one in my family had gone this route, so I didn't have the kind of guidance that maybe other people might have. But I worked it out and figured it out. When you say you were intimidated, was it just because you were the only black female in your class? Or was it the subject matter? Or was it mostly about your identity? Yeah, it was more about being in an environment where there were no professors of color and no female professors, Mm -hmm. period. So there was just all white males. And this was the time of affirmative action. So I heard remarks made that Latinos and blacks are here because, you know, affirmative action and they really don't deserve a spot here. There were comments that were made. So there was all those kinds of pressures. Mm -hmm. Wow. And a lot of people would maybe keep their head down in an environment like that. But you did not do that. You've kind of always had social equality and and justice on your mind. And you haven't let it become a 
back burner question. Putting my head down and going with the flow, that's not how I roll. It just yeah. is, it never has <laughs> been. Um, you know, to give you an example, my first year in law school, Angela Davis was on trial. Mm. She was charged with murder. Uh, a judge had been killed. But anyway, she fled. She was caught, brought back, and I was a first year law student. And so I volunteered to work on her defense team. After graduating Stanford, Ladoris opened the first law practice in East Palo Alto, which is a low-income, primarily African-American and Latino-American community that sits just across the freeway from Stanford and the wealthier Palo Alto. When I left Stanford, I couldn't get a job. Mm. I couldn't get a job. So in a way, it was a good thing because uh, I'd learned in growing up, you make a way where there seems to be no way. So I decided, okay, I'm going to go in East Palo Alto and I'm going to open a law practice. I had an Earl Warren Fellowship, and it was basically a stipend for a period of four years that gave me some income Mm -hmm. so I could work to do this. And then I end up back at Stanford because I became the assistant dean of the law school. So now I'm back in an area of a lot of privilege and then eventually to the bench, most of the time handling criminal cases and most of the defendants were low income and people of color. Mm -hmm. And then I was at Stanford, I was the uh, vice provost at the university and did that for eight years. Leave there, then I'm in San Jose um, and there I'm the independent police auditor. I'm dealing with people who have complaints about the police, most of whom people of color, low-income people. So it's been interesting. It's allowed me to develop some skill sets to be able to walk and move in all these worlds to try to get things done. Yeah. Can you tell uh, listeners a little bit more about your time as assistant dean at the law school right? Um, and what you did there. I know what you did there, but I'd like you to explain a little bit. Well, I was asked to be the assistant dean in 1978. Um, and so I went and I was told, your job as assistant dean is to recruit students of color to the law school because Stanford had just such a small number of students of color. But what they said to me is, you do your thing. You figure out how to make this happen. And what Stanford hadn't done in the past really was to actually reach out to historically black universities and colleges. So I changed all that. Mm. I went because the talent's all there, Mm. right? So at the end of my first year, Stanford led the nation among top law schools in its enrollment of students of color. And by that color, I mean black and brown students. Mm. Second year, we did it again. My third year there, and we did it again. And fourth year. So the talent is out there. It takes these schools to go out and do your work, Uh, not only to just go there, but also those who were admitted. uh, I actively, I stayed, talked to them constantly, Mm -hmm. had professors assigned to them as mentors from the law school, and it worked. Uh, I was just thinking about what kind of positive effect on just the environment of coming to Stanford that is almost the opposite of what your experience was as a student for these kids you recruited and looking to the left and the right and seeing people who look like them and not feeling that weight or that pressure or whatever all that is. Right, and seeing faculty of color and women, Mm -hmm. you know, all of that happened. Mm-hmm. in the process over the years oh, now. So it's a different place, very different from when I was That's there. That's so interesting. That's just one woman, folks. One ripple in a pond that continues to do good and helping others to reach their true, full potential. To learn more about Ladoris, including her work as a musician and an artist, visit judgecordell.com. That's judge, C-O-R-D-E-L-L.com. All the details are in the show notes. 
Coming up, I'll break down today's song, Lawyers, Guns, and Money. But first, a word from another great podcast I think you'll enjoy. I'm musicologist Nate Sloan. And I'm songwriter Charlie Harding. We're the hosts of Switched on Pop, a podcast where Charlie and I break down pop hits to reveal how the music works and why it matters. It's our job to help you find those aha moments within the music, whether you're a pop fanatic or a skeptic, a teenager or an octogenarian, non-musician or professional composer, every music lover will discover something you're opening in Switched on Pop. Yeah, and we think you'll have a lot of fun with us because you're going to get to hear from amazing guest musicians, songwriters, producers, and journalists. Listen to Switched on Pop every week starting in March on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I first heard this song, Lawyers, Guns, and Money, by Warren Zevon in the eighth grade or something. My friend Sam Rosenfeld had given me a tape of the album Excitable Boy, which kind of blew my mind. It was uh, the breakthrough album by Warren Zevon, and it had some bangers on there. Werewolves of London was one of them. And sometimes I just cycle through covers, uh, sitting around playing the guitar. Pink Floyd, Howlin' Wolf, whatever. And I landed on this one, and one line that caught my attention made me smile. Even though it was written in, like, 1979, it sounds like it was written about Don Jr. yesterday. And songwriters like Warren Zevon, Randy Newman, and Bob Dylan were big influences on me. They pushed the limits of what can be said in a popular song, and the way they infused humor and satire in fun, catchy songs made a big impression on me. One line that sounded so much like the Trump family, these lines, send lawyers guns and money. Send lawyers guns and money. Dad, get me out of this. Dad, get me out of this. Ha! And I took this song and, and really changed the tone of it. I, I changed the feel of it for sure. This is a much heavier hitting song. It's, it's more bombastic. The original by Zevon is, is very jangly and has kind of a sillier vibe. Um, but I wanted to make it a bit edgier, bigger, with a lot more guitars. I was lucky enough to uh, join a, a really great group of musicians and entertainers at a Warren Zevon tribute. A friend of mine, Anar George, invited me and it was, it was amazing. This song was available to do so I was really excited to play it. And I ended up going over to Jackson Brown's house for a rehearsal. And he had all these guys who literally played on the record and had played these songs in a certain way for like 40 years. And I wanted to try it another way. And they were definitely skeptical. And uh, it took a bit of convincing. And we kind of ended up meeting halfway between my version and the original. 
but at the show it just was awesome it went off like gangbusters is that a thing and um you know the show was crazy it was like tim robbins was there judd apatow was there and who else am i missing dawes was there and of course jorge calderon uh, who is Warren Zevon's bassist and multi-instrumentalist, and he actually produced his, his final record before he passed away. If I leave you, it doesn't mean I love you any less. Keep me in your heart for a while. So that was such a, such a cool experience for me. Hope I'm not missing anybody in terms of name dropping. Um... <laughs> And the lead guitar part, the kind of driving force behind the entire song, is from the original song. But that was a more jangly, flying burrito brothers type of thing. And uh, the drums are really heavy. I wanted to kind of sound like John Bonham on the kit. I use this plugin called RC20 by XLN. It's such a cool plugin. Um, it just mangles the audio in all kinds of good ways. A lot of hall reverb on the drums. So it really sounds like it was recorded in a castle in rural England. You know, I really let loose and, and let my vocal soar on this one. Send lawyers, guns, and money. Especially on those, those parts. How was I to know she was with the Russians too? How And now here's the full song, Lawyers, Guns, and Money. Be sure to come back next week. We'll be talking about the women who are giants among men.
Peace of Mind is produced and distributed by Critical Frequency, one of the few women-owned and operated networks. If you want to support them, consider joining Critical Frequency Premium, where you can get access to ad-free and bonus content for shows like Drilled, Peace of Mind, and a bunch of others. Check it out at criticalfrequency.org join. I'll be performing in D.C. on April 18th, New York on April 19th, and Boston April 20th. Tickets are available on peaceofmindpod.com. And don't forget, all music from the show is available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Amazon. To pre-order vinyl and get access to bonus content and other cool stuff, join me on Patreon at patreon.com slash bman. That's patreon.com slash b-h-i-m-a-n. This episode was written and produced by Katie Ross, Amy Westervelt, and me, B. Beeman. All music for the show was written and performed by me, and you can find it on Spotify, Apple, and Amazon. This episode was mixed by Elliot Peltzman and me. Additional editing from Finn Matthews. For extra content and upcoming tour dates, go to peaceofmindpod.com. And please support us by leaving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And join us next week for some peace of mind.